Welcome to Highlighters and All-Nighters. I'm your host, Miss Huber, and today I'm going to be reading Tuck Everlasting. This is the prologue through chapter two. Let's begin. The first week of August hangs at the very top of the summer, the top of the live-long year, like the highest seat of a Ferris wheel, when it pauses in its turning. The weeks that come before are only a climb from the balmy spring, and those that follow a drop to the chill of autumn. But the first week of August is motionless and hot. It is curiously silent, too, with the blank white dawns and glaring noons, and sunsets smeared with too much color. Often at night there is lightning, but it quivers all alone. There is no thunder, no relieving rain. These are strange and breathless days, the dog days, when people are led to do things they are sure to be sorry for after. One day at that time, not so very long ago, three things happened, and at first there appeared to be no connection between them. At dawn, May Tuck set out on her horse for the wood at the edge of the village of Tregat. She was going there, as she did once every ten years, to meet her two sons, Miles and Jesse. At noontime, Winnie Foster, whose family owned the Tree Gap Wood, lost her patience at last and decided to think about running away. And at Stranger, a sunset appeared at the Foster's gate. He was looking for someone, but he didn't say who. No connection, you would agree. But things can come together in strange ways. The wood was at the center, the hub of the wheel. All wheels must have a hub. A Ferris wheel has one, as the sun is the hub of the wheeling calendar. Fixed points they are, and best left undisturbed, for without them, nothing holds together. But sometimes, people find this out too late. Chapter 1. The road that led to Tree Gap had been trod out long before by a herd of cows who were, to say the least, relaxed. It wandered along in curves and easy angles, swayed off and up in a pleasant tangent to the top of a small hill, ambled down again between fringes of bee-hung clover, and then cut sideways across a meadow. Here, its edges blurred. It widened and seemed to pause, suggesting tranquil bovine picnics, slow chewing and thoughtful contemplation of the infinite. And then it went on again and came at last to the wood. On reaching the shadows of the first trees, it veered sharply, swung out in a wide arc as if, for the first time, it had reason to think where it was going and passed around. On the other side of the wood, the sense of easiness dissolved. The road no longer belonged to the cows. It became instead, and rather abruptly, the property of people. And all at once, the sun was uncomfortably hot, the dust oppressive, and the meager grass along its edges somewhat ragged and forlorn. On the left stood the first house, a square and solid cottage with a touch-me-not appearance, surrounded by grass cut painfully to the quick, and enclosed by a capable iron fence some four feet high, which clearly said, Move on! We don't want you here! So the road went humbly by and made its way, past cottages more and more frequent, but less and less forbidding, into the village. But the village doesn't matter, except for the jailhouse and the gallows. The first house only is important. The first house the road, and the wood. There is something strange about the wood. If the look of the first house suggested you better pass it by, so did the look of the wood, but for quite a different reason. The house was so proud of itself that you wanted to make a lot of noise as you passed, and maybe even throw a rock or two. But the wood had a sleeping, otherworld appearance that made you want to speak in whispers. This, at least, is what the cows must have thought. Let it keep its peace. We won't disturb it. 
Whether the people felt that way about the wood or not is difficult to say. There were some, perhaps, who did, but for the most part, the people followed the road around the wood because that was the way it led. But there is no road through the wood, and anyway, for the people, there is another reason to leave the wood, the wood to itself. It belonged to the Fosters, the owners of the Touch Me Not Cottage, and was therefore private property, in spite of the fact that it lay outside the fence and was perfectly accessible. The ownership of land is an odd thing when you come to think of it. How deep, after all, can it go? If a person owns a piece of land, does he own it all the way down in ever-narrowing dimensions till it meets all other pieces at the center of the earth? Or does ownership consist only of a thin crust under which the friendly worms have never heard of trespassing. In any case, the wood being on top, except of course for its roots, was owned bud and bough by the Fosters in the Touchmanot Cottage, and if they never went there, if they never wandered in among the trees, well, that was their affair. Winnie, the only child of the house, never went there, though sometimes she stood inside the fence, careless, carelessly banging a stick against the iron bars, and looked at it. But she had never been curious about it, Nothing ever seems interesting when it belongs to you, only when it doesn't. And what is interesting, anyway, about a few slim acres of trees? There will be a dimness shot through, with bars of sunlight, a great many squirrels and birds, and a deep, damp mattress of leaves on the ground, and all the other things just as familiar, if not so pleasant. Things like spiders, thorns, and grubs. In the end, however, it was the cows who were responsible for the wood's isolation, and the cows... Through some wisdom they were not wise enough to know that they possessed, were very wise indeed. If they had made their road through the wood instead of around it, then the people would have followed the road. The people would have noticed the giant ash tree at the center of the wood, and then, in time, they'd have noticed the little spring bubbling up among its roots in spite of the pebbles piled there to conceal it. And that would have been a disaster so immense that this weary old earth, owned or not to its fiery core, would have trembled on its axis like a beetle on a pin. Chapter 2 And so, at dawn that day in the first week of August, May Tuck woke up and lay for a while, beaming at the cobwebs on the ceiling. At last she said aloud, The boys will be home tomorrow. May's husband, on his back beside her, did not stir. He was still asleep, and the melancholy creases that folded his daytime face were smoothed and slack. He snored gently, and for a moment the corners of his mouth turned upward in a smile. Tuck almost never smiled, except in sleep. May sat up in bed and looked at him tolerantly. The boys will be home tomorrow, she said again, a little more loudly. Tuck twitched, and the smile vanished. He opened his eyes. Why do you have to wake me up, he sighed. I was having that dream again, the good one where we're all in heaven and never heard of tree gap. May sat there frowning, a great potato of a woman with a round, sensible face and calm brown eyes. It's no use having that dream, she said. Nothing's going to change. You tell me that every day, said Tuck, turning away from her onto his side. Anyways, I can't help what I dream. Maybe not, said May, but all the same, you should have got used to things by now. Tuck groaned. I'm going back to sleep, he said. Not me, said May. I'm going to take the horse and go down to the wood to meet them. Me who? The boys, Tuck, our sons. I'm going to ride down to meet them. Better not do that, said Tuck. I know, said May, but I just can't wait to see them. Anyways, it's been ten years since I went to Tree Gap. No one will remember me. I'll ride in, the, in at sunset, just to the wood, and I won't go into the village. But 
Even if someone did see me, they won't remember. They never did before now, did they? Suit yourself then, said Tuck into his pillow. I'm going back to sleep. May Tuck climbed out of the bed and began to dress. Three putty coats, a rusty brown skirt with one enormous pocket, an old cotton jacket, and a knitted shawl, which she pinned across her bosom with a tarnished metal brooch. The sounds of her dressing were so familiar to Tuck that he could say, without opening his eyes, You don't need that shawl in the middle of the summer. May ignored this observation. Instead, she said, Will you be all right? We won't get back till late tomorrow. Tuck rolled over and made a rueful face at her. What in the world could possibly happen to me? That's so, said May. I keep forgetting. I don't, said Tuck. Have a nice time. And in a moment, he was asleep again. May sat on the edge of the bed and pulled on a pair of short leather boots so thin and soft with age, it was a wonder they held together. Then she stood and took from the washstand beside the bed a little square-shaped object, a music box painted with roses and lilies of the valley. It was the one pretty thing she owned, and she never went anywhere without it. Her fingers strayed to the winding key on its bottom, but glancing at the sleeping tuck, she shook her head, gave the little box a pat, and dropped it into her pocket. Then, last of all, she pulled down over her ears a blue straw hat with a drooping, exhausted brim. But before she put on the hat, she brushed her gray-brown hair and wound it into a bun at the back of her neck. She did this quickly and skillfully without a single glance in the mirror. May Tuck didn't need a mirror, though she had one propped up on the washstand. She knew very well what she would see in it. Her reflection had long since ceased to interest her, for May Tuck and her husband, and Miles and Jesse too, had all looked exactly the same for 87 years.